0: Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and... Luke Boyd. Welcome, everyone. This week marks a very special first on the Morbid Museum. We have our first guest. Hooray! Milestone, milestone, milestone.
1: (laughs) Hitting multiple time zones, multiple hosts.
0: Oh, yeah. So. We are working three hours apart. We are in totally different locations, all three of us. So we may not all sound the same, but our hearts are in the same place, aren't they? That's what That's matters. That's right, God damn
1: it, Our morbid <laughs> yes. hearts are connected, yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So our special guest this week is one of my oldest and dearest friends. Uh, We go way back to uh, high school theater, God help us all. What did we meet? I was, I guess I was like 14 and you were 15. And we were in a horrible musical called The Boys from Syracuse together.
2: (laughs) Correct.
1: (laughs) That is correct, Your
0: Honor. Yes, it is.
2: That's right. (laughs) Uh, And this lovely,
0: this lovely person is one Mr. Brian Otano. Brian is an incredibly talented writer. He's written for the stage and the screen and his specific area of interest and expertise is actually the horror thriller genre so we thought who better to be one of our first guests ever and brian what will you be talking about with us today
2: today i'm going to first of all hello and thank you very much for having me i'm excited to be here i'm a big fan of the pod uh thank
0: you today i'm gonna be
2: taking you all on a tour of 112 ocean avenue also known as the Amityville Horror House, also known uh, as High Hopes,
0: yes. also known
2: as the Cracker Box Palace. Uh, I'm
0: terrified. Yeah. <laughs> I, hate, I hate this so much. <laughs> yes. But we tell you something,
2: you should be terrified and like for reasons that are just beyond anything you might imagine. Now, okay, so we all grew up in the tri-state area, right? Yes. That's right. If you were like just basically an American who was alive in the eighties or the nineties, you know, about the Amityville horror, but I mean, the impact of the Amityville horror on those of us who were like local to New York, I think is especially horrifying. I I mean, the name Amityville has become synonymous with like modern paranormal horror, but as a kid I get creeped out even just passing signs for Amityville on the sunrise highway. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And you know, going to the video store and like, like I mean, I lived in the horror section. Like the horror movies basically raised me. And as a child of the '80s, I sort of grew up fearing the sight of that house with those quarter moon windows. Hate them. Hate them so much. The (laughs) the story. The eyes are watching you. A hundred percent. That was the whole deal. I think that's a huge part of the reason why this house and this franchise is so iconic uh because yeah. of the, the distinctive look of the house and those windows that always just seemed like they were like watching you and i think the story also had staying power in the zeitgeist because it was supposedly based on a true story um, right so
0: i was actually going to ask no. you that and I don't i don't know if you know this to be fact or not but i'm i'm trying to think of my own knowledge of horror and I feel like this was one of the first horror movies and franchises that was based on quote unquote, a real account.
2: There were a handful of thing movies out there that were like loosely inspired by the story of Leopold and Loeb uh, before mm-hmm. this. Uh, and The Exorcist, which had come out a couple of years before this- That's was true, I guess The Exorcist heavily was also
0: based on real
2: stuff allegedly. Yes, yes. Heavily adapted from a, the true story of a, a boy, uh, a young boy being having demons exercised out of him. But I right. think uh, the Texas Chainsaw—it's Mass- it's so funny that they that all these movies sort of uh, came out in the '70s. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, that's inspired by like ten different based things. Based on a true story, yeah, right? That's right. And inspired and, by
1: and, Ed Gein, Little Ed Gein, yeah. little everybody else. Yeah.
2: Yes, but as the narration would would have it, that that film is packaged. As uh, a true story unto itself, like with uh,
0: I remember that yeah. Sally
2: and 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 Franklin and and you know the and that and that the family of cannibals that lived out in the outskirts of you know Texas. Uh, <laughs> remember
0: that? Remember when that happened? Oh,
2: good times! Good times! <laughs> good times! So, yeah, but the, but this was I mean, but this is one of those this was one of those stories that uh was that claimed to be based on a true story that really, I think it, I would say of all of those stories, like the fact that this claimed to be based on a true story, I think made the biggest wave and we will get into why. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm curious what everybody's first introduction was to Amityville. If everybody's seen it, if everybody's seen all the movies or the newest movies or whatever. So Brian, cause you're our, you're our guest. Why don't you give us your, your uh, Amity story and we'll go around.
2: I think honestly, okay. So something when I was about six or seven, The floodgates opened uh, beyond just the movies that were being shown on Fox 5 over to the movies that I was finding at the video store. And I just, you know, one day I got around to renting the Amityville Horror and I brought it home. I must, I, I had to have been like younger than seven or eight and Whoa. It, uh, yeah, I was a child oh, I mean I was a, what I tell you what I my parents truly I mean they were like that typical Catholic household that was like if the movie's violent and scary that's fine as long as there are no boobies like that was right yeah of course know, like sex, was, sex was off limits everything else was fair game don't you dare I, rent Halloween you know, I, <laughs> I mean, no. You know, the funny thing is, the first time I saw Halloween, it was edited for television. I saw it on Fox Five. I saw all oh, of so the, you didn't see any the original slasher movies edited for TV. No, mm. no, PJ Soul's boobs—I was not privy, uh, which is fine. But you know what? The funny thing about Amityville Horror is, like, I mean, <laughs> James Brolin starred in the Amityville Horror, and he was one of my first man crushes. Mr. Barbara Streisand himself, um, gorgeous.
0: Also, oh my God, what's with her name? Hairy
2: chest, like, don't even get. Oh mis- yeah, I didn't <laughs> forget
0: it. But what's her name? There's a ton yeah. of side tit in that movie. Like a yeah. crazy amount. Yeah. Margot Kidder,
2: the boob. <laughs> and like the fake. Is, yeah, the boob. Yeah, out, fake sure. sex
0: stuff. It's not sex free. So I don't know what lie you told your mom.
2: <laughs> That's when mom walks I mean, in. For like right, the half, of course. The half
0: edited scene. Oh, God.
2: I mean, it wasn't a topless girl trapped in a waterbed like in a nightmare in Elsa's four. 4. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't the crying game. <laughs> So you know.
0: So you were doing okay (laughs) for whatever. Yeah, for whatever young kid watching this.
2: Yes, yes, yes. I was a young kid. I was an impressionable kid, and it was just one of those things that, like, I mean, horror movies were my lullaby movies. They put me to sleep at night. I really, (laughs) I love, I still love horror movies to this day. And so, and this movie particularly had like the score and the atmosphere, and even just the way it looks, the way it was photographed, Mm -hmm. like has such a. You know, it was a modern story and, you know, it's it was a sort of precursor to poltergeist in that it was set in a suburb. But yeah. there was still something kind of it was like a I mean, I guess the best ca- way to categorize it is, is sort of like a it it's like this weird slice of uh, modern Americana with like really weird sort of creepy old fashioned touches. I really, really lo- I loved it. I still think I mean, I don't love the movie anymore. But I think there's there's a lot to be appreciated about like the texture of it and the way it sounds and the way it like the the way it looks, the way it's photographed. For sure. I think it's
0: also with a lot of the movies from that time period. It is also like you have to look at it with a little bit of understanding of how incredibly frightening it was for the time, versus when you watch mm-hmm. it now and it's like ugh, that's it's so slow because we're used to a much faster moving horror movie. <sighs> right. These days, yes, it's correct. So much slower. The scares are not very many and some of them aren't really even that good. Um, and so, <laughs> some of it to the point where it looks really fucking cheesy and bad. Mm. But I think it's still full disclosure. I just watched the original for the first time this weekend. Ah,
1: Can you wow. believe that? <laughs> That's
0: amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I had only seen the that shitty nuts. Ryan Reynolds one, which by the way is worse than the original. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs>
2: oh yeah
0: i am as as the people on this podcast now know um i'm a big scaredy cat <laughs> i don't like watching horror movies and uh that was one of the ones that always really frightened me and uh, any of the movies that were about demonic possession of some kind that there's a bad thing living in this house in this space scared me the most probably because i grew up catholic and so I really, oh, yeah. for a lot of my life, truly believed in the devil and his ability to embody someone or something or just be this this evil presence in a in a home. And so I avoided it for a really long time. And then time went on, and I just forgot about it and didn't bother seeing right. it. But yeah, it it always loomed large out here on Long Island where I currently live. Um, my aunt made us drive by it once when I was a little kid, and I almost pissed myself because I'd never heard the whole story before and I was probably 10 when she decided to tell it to me (laughs) which is so mean I didn't sleep for days (laughs) and then years ago I watched a like little documentary on it it was probably on something like A&E like biography or some nonsense and it was And it was totally the, the two of them, the Lutzes being interviewed extensively about their version of the story. And it, again, it scared the bejesus out of me just hearing their version of events. And I am a skeptic, of course I am, right? I think people who just straight on believe in that stuff, you know, I question your sanity, but I'm open to possibilities, sure. which is why I'm easily <laughs> scared by that shit. <laughs>
1: Well, it's very interesting it's it's in the home
0: and yeah, it's in the suburb, you're safe, you know. It's your safe space is your house, yeah. your home. Yeah. And to find out you're not safe in that space is the most terrifying thing you can think of.
1: Yeah, I hmm. think I probably first saw the original movie when I was a teenager. I was also kinda I was blocked out from horror most of my youth years and it was terrifying. I, I agree with Brian like some I like the grittiness I like the like the voiceover demon segments or like the skin yeah they still freak they still freak me out they're just the way it's done it could probably because it takes me back to being like 12 years old again I was obsessed with the real places these these stories took place you know like the exorcist steps are in Washington and you can climb them they're by Georgetown they're terrifying and they're actually really dangerous and then (laughs) the first time I saw the Amityville house was when I went to at Katie's wedding which was on Long Island out in Massapequa Park area and we were staying over in the area so we're like oh Right by to, be able to drive by, and it is so accessible. It's it is so accessible. like easy to yeah. get to. Yeah, and so I can imagine the site being swamped by oh, tourists and onlookers. You know, after this stuff all hits the fan, yeah. and I think that's also part of the staying power. Is that it's any burb? It's it's not like it's a Texas farm or some Idaho you know ranch. It's way too easy for kids who grew up in the suburbs to sort of imagine this landscape in their own yeah. backyard.
0: And I guess that also going yeah. back to what we were saying before about how this is, you know, in my mind, one of the first, like, based on a true story things, there's an actual living artifact, a place that exists that where you can see this fucking happened here. So it's not like, oh, yeah, it's kind of based on Ed Gein or whatever. But like, you know, I don't know. It's like, no, this allegedly mm-hmm. happened in this house at this address. So right. that mm-hmm. makes and it so recently. Scary. What'd you say, Luke? No. While we're talking Actually, about... very recently.
2: Yes. While we're talking about the way... It's funny that we're all talking about the way the movie looked. I copied and pasted a link to the YouTube uh, uh, page of like the radio spots for Amityville Horror. The link is in the chat.
0: No, I'm not listening to this. That's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the music so much, it hurts me in, to my core. <laughs> Triggering. <laughs> nope, not listening. Nope, I'm out. <laughs> That's your little lullaby though, isn't it, you maniac?
2: <laughs> I love it. See, I mean, it's just so, it's just so rickety crickety. There's something so delightfully musty about it. So let's get into the, the Amityville horror. We're gonna start with the prevailing narrative as, is, as it has been cemented into our minds through pop culture. On November 13th, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr., who we're going to refer to as Butch from here on out, picked up a 35-caliber Marlin rifle and murdered his entire family while they slept in their Dutch Colonial Mansion. First, he shot his parents, Ronald and Louise DeFeo, twice each, before going on to murder his brothers, Mark and John, who were 12 and 7 respectively. And then his sisters, Allison and Dawn, who were 13 and 18, respectively. So
0: awful. They were all so found...
2: Awful. I know. They were, they were all found in the same position, in bed, mm. on their stomachs. It does not appear that any of them struggled or that any of the family members heard the gunshots and got out of bed. That's the story. Like, every depiction of yeah. this murder and every retelling of it sort of, like really hinges on this detail. Okay. So no drugs. It's a reported. loud gun too. That's what I'm
0: saying. Is 100%. like that's what makes it so crazy. Yeah. And this is the story that's also told <clears throat> in court.
2: Uh yes. Well okay. in yes, in court we'll get to that. Um Okay. Sorry, did not mean to jump, so it, it mean to jump that, the gun. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't appear <laughs> shut your mouth. It doesn't appear that any of them struggled. It doesn't appear that uh any of the family heard the gunshots and get out of bed and uh, like I mean the family didn't hear them and the neighbors didn't hear them either. All they heard right. was the family's barking sheepdog, Shaggy. The rifle wasn't outfitted with a silencer. That I don't even think you could have put a silencer on mm. that gun. No, not on that kind so of gun. The no. next, right, so the next day, Butch was arrested for his family's murders after briefly feigning innocence and trying to blame their murders on a mafia hit. Now, mm-hmm. just over a year later... Butch was tried for the murders and he pled not guilty by a reason of insanity claiming that demonic voices made him do it right now on November, on November 21st, 1975, just a little over a year after the murders were committed, he was found guilty of all six murders and received a sentence of 25 years to life for each murder weeks later on December 18th, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue where they claim they were besieged by ghosts and demonic forces that brought down all kinds of unholy hell on them. I'm going to give you a rundown of a list of like the things they say happened to them in this house. They, they say that the house had terrible cold sp- spots and inexplicable swarms of flies. They claim that the walls oozed green slime. They claim that they had a priest come through to bless the house, and he was the one to hear that demonic voice ordering him to get out. They say that after he left the house, he suffered various inexplicable health ailments, including blindness, horrible flu symptoms. Like, he just basically kind of fell apart after being exposed to the house. They claim that an unseen force brought a window down on one of their son's hands.
0: Uh, There was a red room that
2: 100% (laughs) uh, a red room was discovered in the basement that was reputed to be gateway to hell. George Lutz Mm. uh, went through a period where he was waking up every night at 315 in the morning, the time that the DeFeos were allegedly murdered. He also once woke up and saw his wife's body levitating over their bed. Their daughter, Missy, (laughs) claimed to have in Yeah, right? While we're at it, their daughter Missy claims to have an imaginary friend that was actually a demonic pig named Jody. They suffered all <laughs> kinds hey, of Jody. Right, They suffered all kinds of auditory hallucinations and uh, including marching bands playing in the living room, screaming. George Lutz also claims to have undergone like a really intense personality change. I guess the, he thought that the sleep deprivation paired with the demonic forces of the house were sort of driving him insane. And all of that is like in no particular order. Those are, that's just like a laundry list of all the things that uh, happened to them while they were in the house. And after 28 days, the has fled the house leaving all of their belongings and they never returned. So their story, as told to Jay Anson, became this... Phenomenal best-selling book that sold over 10 million copies, and as we mentioned, as we've been mentioning, was adapted into a film starring Margot Kidder and my childhood man crush, uh, Mr. Barbra Streisand himself, James Brolin. Um, so, so that chopping so much wood, so cool, oh, man. I all that wood, honey. all that wood. <laughs> uh, so, those are the bullet points of the prevailing narrative surrounding 112 Ocean Avenue, and it's all bullshit. It's all. It's like, it's all. It is, and the story of the hoax and the forming of this hoax and everything else Mm. that I'm about to get into is far more bizarre and ultimately tragic than anything that they could have dreamt up for this novel. We're going to call it a novel because it is a work of fiction. The house at 112 Ocean (laughs) Avenue was never haunted. The truth behind this story and how it came together unfolds like an absurd caper populated by con artists and fucking charlatans. It's the sort of thing that, like, you would imagine David O. Russell or Steven Soderbergh would make into a fucking fascinating character study about hustlers (laughs) pulling the ultimate long con. And all the people around them who are either trying to discredit them or cash in. Now, Mm. let's get into it.
0: Let's get into it.
2: Yes. Okay. So it was incredibly easy to poke holes in the Lutz's story, and it didn't take long for everyone to pile on, which, frankly, they asked for. Among the people who, like, (laughs) chimed in the chorus of, like, (laughs) like, it's true. They were so out of pocket with this story, it was wild. So... (laughs) Among the people who came out to discredit them were it was the Catholic diocese of Rockville Center, the Amityville Police Department, the U.S. District Court, William Weber, Butch DeFeo's defense attorney, numerous parapsychologists and paranormal investigators, and filmmakers, including one Ryan Katzenbach, who we will delve into during the, I guess, the third portion of this uh, episode. Now... We're going to start with a guy named Stephen Kaplan while trying to whip up interest in the story uh, from the paranormal community. After George Lutz vacated the house with his family, he reached out to a handful of paranormal investigators, hoping that they would come and check the house out. And I think the thinking on his part was that he just wanted them all there so that he could say, oh, we've had numerous paranormal psychologists come through. And he reached out to Stephen Kaplan, who was based in Long Island. And you know George wanted him to investigate the house but swerved real hard when kaplan told him i'll do it for free but if you're full of mm. shit i'm gonna let the world know that's not a direct quote but like that's basically like what this <laughs> was. if this Stop. is a hoax don't right. worry if we do that a, a lot hoax, on I'm this going...
0: show <laughs> we do a lot of historical <laughs> like paraphrasing
2: <laughs> so yeah needless to say after he said that he never heard from George again. Uh Now, eventually the two started taking snipes at each other in the press. George tried to discredit Kaplan and said, oh yeah, you know, I, I disinvited him from coming to check out my house because it turns out that like, you know, he claimed to have PhDs that he didn't have. Meanwhile, Kaplan came back and started asking very simple questions about details in George's story that could have been confirmed by, I don't know, weather almanacs or hospital records, press photos. Bit by bit over the course of right. a conversation. Right. Like he just, like Kaplan just basically, but with questions, like backed George into a corner until he basically admitted to having fabricated practically everything that Kaplan was asking about. The one sticking point for Kaplan specifically, and it was very simple, was the incident with the window. Right. You know, George and Kathy Lutz claimed that this window slammed down on their son's hand and that they rushed him to Brunswick hospital for treatment, but found that like none of his bones had broken. And so Kaplan was like, all right, cool. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna subpoena the records from Brunswick hospital.
0: Yeah, And make
2: sure one way or the other that, you know, find out once and for all, whether or not, you know, y'all rolled up. And he was like, oh, well, no, actually, we just took him to a clinic. And they were like, great. What was the name of the clinic? And then George was like, Oh, actually, we just kept him at home and bandaged his hand up there. Okay. And it's like, bro, (laughs) how do we go from like an incident that landed you in the hospital to, oh, we bandaged this up at home. Like, it was just things like that. Like, I don't want to go through and like annotate every iota of bullshit that came through this story, but like they went to professionals and more often than not, the professionals were like, you're trash. Now, (laughs) we we can trace the roots of this hoax back to, of all people, William Weber, Butch DeFeo's defense attorney, who you know by all accounts didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And he was hell bent on getting Butch off with an insanity plea. When that was tanking, he thought that he might double down with uh, the devil made me do it narrative. And so right. you know he and George and Kathy Lutz got together to discuss concocting this story. They got wine drunk and came up with the whole thing harvesting facts from defeo and the murder case and going buck wild creating this insane story one particular detail uh the pig with the glowing eyes hanging out the window yeah. was actually a neighbor's overweight siamese cat <laughs> 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 shit you not yeah so they They got wine drunk and they started coming up with all these different ideas like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll say that he that that George woke up at 315 every night because that's when, you know, medical examiners think the family died. And they looked at crime scene photos and they saw that there was all this black gunk on the doors and they thought that that was like slime. And, you know, Weber said, no, that's graphite for, you know, for dusting for fingerprints. But when you photograph it and light it in a certain way, it comes out looking green like they just Mm. I mean, It was like this fucked up idea salad of like them taking all the facts that they gleaned from the details of the crime. And, you know, it was pretty insane. Now, all of this was carried out in the hopes that DeFeo would get a new trial. William Weber thought at the end of the day, if this story got enough traction, it became widely uh, accepted that the house was haunted, then he could potentially get a new trial. And that's just not how it all shook out. He also was counting on a payday.
0: That's a real fucking Hail Mary. If you think if I could get everyone to believe in ghosts. <laughs> right,
2: right. And right, is, right, this, yeah. is this is this
1: is this is this is this wine drunk brainstorming session happening before the Lutzes leave or after they leave?
0: They're gone already. After. Right? already they gone. Still, they still own the house because no one wants to fucking buy it. Right. Right.
1: So I'm still trying to get right. to the, the right their motive. You know, here's
2: the ass kicker. The Lutzes claim to not have had any knowledge of The crimes, the house, of any. That's bullshit. But (laughs) as Butch DeFeo would tell you, not only did they know about the murders, but before the murders happened, George and Kathy Lutz, and this is wild, this is some conjecture, but like as part of the fabric of this story, the hoax within the hoax, potentially. Butch DeFeo claims that he used to go to the city with George and Kathy Lutz and cop drugs with them. What? what? I should, you yeah, yo, I mean here's the thing. And and we'll get into Defeo's I don't stuff know later, if I but like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here well, for it. Well, well,
0: well <laughs> Luke loves the
2: Defeo was a known. I mean, Defeo was a known heroin addict by this point, right? Mm. And so he would go into the city and cop heroin with George. But Kathy, according to him, was not into heroin. She was into cocaine. So they would have to double back and go to Willis <laughs> Avenue in the Bronx where they would cop the cocaine. It was like the the thing about here's the thing about like the people. Uh, everybody linked to the Defeo case. They like if they're liars, they're like I mean masters at The craft they're like, the, like, the check off of like bullshit artists, like, it's wild. So, decades of lying, but yeah, a long like, time, sure. I mean, but like, but, de, but DeFeo DeFeo is claims not, that, he's
0: not a good witness, he's not a reliable, no, source.
2: no, no, he's not a reliable source, but he was, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that okay, at the very least, I buy that they knew about mm-hmm. the. Murder. I mean, I if, if I
1: knew, I would negotiate
0: for a lower price in the
2: house. I mean, come on.
0: The house right. was already, no. like, really below market value, wasn't it, right. when, it when they were selling it?
2: Mm. It was below market value and still above, uh, way over their budget, but they bought right. it anyway. Uh, and uh, neighbors would say that, like, they would pass by the, cur- the curtain. There were no curtains on the windows and none of the boxes were unpacked. It was as if they moved in and they had no intention of staying. So yeah, here's the problem with the Lutzes and William Weber. These motherfuckers were double dealing, okay? They connected with Weber, <laughs> got all these details, and then, and like, it, meanwhile, like, articles are being written by Paul Hoffman detailing their struggle in like New York Daily News and good housekeeping. But after fabricating a chunk of the story with Weber, they looked at the agreement that was laid out between Weber and the Lutzes and DeFeo, and they just didn't. Re- they weren't really happy with the deal. So they took all of the intel and all the, the, the stuff that they had dreamt up with Weber and brought it to another writer. And that yeah. was when they teamed with Jay Anson. And he was the one mm-hmm. that would ultimately go on to write the Amityville Horror. And DeFeo and Weber were factored out of it just outright. Like they only got as far as getting DeFeo to sign a release for his part of the story. And then they literally ghosted them both, teamed mm. with another writer, and cut a different deal, and wrote the book incorporating many of the fabrications that they dreamt up when they were wine drunk with William Weber. Now they fucked with the wrong one because <laughs> Weber turned around. <laughs> Weber was like, "Hi, you don't fuck over a lawyer." He basically yeah, was turned just, around.
0: Do your asses.
2: Yeah. He sued them in U.S. District Court, and then the Lutzes countersued Weber. And, you know, the punchline is, they all came out looking like assholes. Because in the proceedings, Judge Jack Weinstein found that it was clear when presented with all the facts the Lutzes had fabricated d- key details of their story. Like Weber was able to sort of poke holes in all of it and also prove that like he had a hand in making it up, but it also became abundantly clear that Weber was dangerously tap dancing on that line between attorney and literary agent, which is yeah. a good fucking no, no, if you're a lawyer. So right. Weber's <laughs> case. Yeah. So like, you know, the, th- this was settled. Weber settled with the Lutzes out of court. The Lutzes withdrew their case. And that was the end of that. Now,
0: you know, you know, that's... what's interesting, though, right, to think about is I'm pretty sure and you guys correct me if I'm wrong. It's when Sam Berkowitz is convicted that that law comes into play where a serial killer cannot make money off of. Like their own biography as a killer, and so this predates that for DeFeo. So I wonder yes, if yes. this would you have been D- D- a David Berkowitz, out- the son of Sam. Right. I'm oh, sorry, I said Sam Berkowitz because yeah, he's yeah, son yeah. of Sam. <laughs> um, derp. I'm rusty on my serial killer knowledge. I've been diving so deeply into Victorian history. <laughs> um, but yeah, if the, I wonder if this would have changed the entire game, if literally the lawyer was not. Allowed to even consider having DeFeo part of anything because it could have, because it really could have jeopardized DeFeo's appeals and things like that if it was found out mm-hmm. that he was concocting stories to help his client. So I wonder if that would have changed things.
2: It probably would have, right? I mean, the whole the whole thing. I mean, the, the whole thing just like reeks of ineptitude there are so many (laughs) details in in the book because here's the thing like it's like George and Kathy making up a story but then like handing over the bullet points to a guy who then was adding his layer of bullshit to it Mm, and you know it was everything from days they claimed there was like heavy snowfall when you look back at the weather records there was no snowfall claiming that like their front door which was 300 pounds got blasted off of its hinges from the inside when meanwhile like all photos of the house after they vacated show that the door is fine and still attached just like little things like that they just went buck wild the bottom line is the details of the haunting of, at 112 ocean avenue were called into question and debunked the, not long after the book was published in the late 1970s but here's the thing no one seemed to care after <laughs> a while it just, after a while it didn't matter The events at 112 Ocean Avenue spawned this franchise of books, many of which were written by the very people who were trying to discredit their story. One way or another, people were cashing in, whether they were buying into the story or shitting on the story. They were in the mix, okay? Print the legend. And then the irony is many of these books were then heavily adapted and turned into the horror movies that were perpetuating the lives of these people were setting out to debunk in the first place I think one of the best examples and one of the most egregious examples of this is Hans Holzer, who was a parapsychologist and just a, I'll, I'll spare I'll spare the insults but I will say that he wrote uh, uh, what he you know what we could presume to be a prequel book about the about a family that was heavily inspired by the defeos that, totally bought into the demonic possession storyline, and then took it a step further and brought it into fucking flowers in the attic territory and claimed that Butch and his oldest sister were in an incestuous relationship. Like Don, this was, this was one of the guys shitting on the story, but then like in in the next breath, turning around and writing a book that would then become the basis of like the, the first sequel in the Amityville horror franchise. Believers and non-believers alike have sort of made an industry out of the Amityville franchise. As of this recording, these are the movies. This is, these are the, I'm going to run down all the movies in the Amityville movie franchise. Just so that y'all know what the fuck we're dealing with here. Go! We've got the original Amityville Horror, Amityville 2, The Possession, Amityville 3D, Amityville 4, The no. Escapes. The, yes, The Amityville no. Curse amityville it's about time amityville <laughs> a new generation the amityville dollhouse and then oh. the remake uh the amityville horror in 2005 with ryan reynolds and his insane bare chest and also frankly like a performance from glowy chloe, chloe grace moretz that has no business being as good as it is she played the youngest daughter <laughs> she, uh, was
0: good. <laughs> Missy Lutz.
2: she was and she was so fucking good in that movie it was unreal and okay but like by,
0: brian when is Amityville the musical? That's what everyone wants to know.
2: <laughs> Honey, I'm not even done, girl. There's Amityville The Awakening, starring Jennifer Jason Lee, a.k.a. Selena St. George. Shout out to Dolores Claiborne. The Amityville Murders, which is actually a movie, that movie was released in 2018 and was based on the book written by the assistant district attorney who tried Ronald DeFeo in court. Oh. There's Amityville in space. Amityville in no! space, bitch.
0: No. Yes. <laughs> Come on. And
2: then, <laughs> and then, y'all, the Amityville Karen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who did that? Who did that, though?
2: <laughs> I wish, I wish this was a video podcast because Katie's face.
1: <laughs> Is this, when was this
2: made? Uh, 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 this year. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's, it's in like, the, it's like the postmodern Amityville- Karen. Yeah. Yeah, Amityville In Space and Amityville Karen are the most recent uh, additions out. to the Amityville franchise. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: that's great, it's great.
2: So here's the thing, there's one title that I didn't that I didn't include in this list because it sort of belongs in its own league. And this is where things kind of take a a, a dark turn and it mm. stops being funny haha and starts being funny uh oh. The movie that stands out from the pack for me is a movie titled My Amityville Horror, which is a firsthand retelling of the Amityville Horror myth as told by Daniel Lutz, one of Kathy Whoa. and George Lutz's sons. So here's the thing. I've skipped many of the sequels, but I watched this one because it <laughs> Why? seemed like a real- it
0: sounds so good. <laughs>
2: I know, I mean, once it started, once it, like, I stopped at part four with the haunted lamp, and, you know, with Patty Duke, (laughs) and it was some, for some reason, set in, like, you know, San Luis Obispo, so I skipped many of the sequels, but I watched this one, because it seemed like it was a break in the formula, and it was offering up an angle, it was telling this bullshit story from an angle we'd never seen before, now, when I watched it, I mean, it was so much more than I bargained for, it was so unnerving because this story isn't told as a scripted piece of fiction. It isn't told by an actor playing Daniel Lutz. This is packaged as a documentary and features Daniel Lutz himself. Whoa. Okay. Where can you now, watch this? It was available for streaming on Netflix. I'm sure you can rent it. Uh, streaming okay. Anywhere. Now, Here's the deal. He like perpetuates a lot of the mythology as laid out by his parents. And that story may not be true. But knowing that the story was a hoax, but watching him sort of like tap into some very real trauma is so unsettling. This guy was either turning in a fantastic performance or we were watching someone essentially put his trauma, and his mental illness on display for the sake of entertainment in a way that was so convincing and so scary. And like there were elements of the story that were woven into the movie that were probably true, but they were all of the elements that really dealt with his rocky relationship with George. Like, right, because
0: that's his stepdad. That's not his dad.
2: Yeah, no, not his father. And apparently right. George, I mean, they really went down the rabbit hole after they fled the house and sold their story. It should, I mean, the the first indicator is that the family moved to fucking California, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is the land of con artists and hustlers and 18 karat <laughs> pimps. It's just like... <laughs>
0: Where you sell your story, that's for sure.
2: That's right. And, you know, it's so abundantly clear that like for Daniel, the trauma of his upbringing with George and the trauma of having to live this lie is so entwined with the narrative that they created. And it's just so it's Mm. it's one of the most disturbing things you will ever see. So,
0: just without giving too much away, because it sounds like something worth watching, what's the general sort of his thesis statement in all of this?
2: His thesis is that what his parents put forth as the truth was the truth, and that it was just the tip of the iceberg. Whoa. And like, and as a story, as a piece of fiction, it's fascinating, but the fact that it's packaged as truth, and is told. In the way he tells it, it's just—it's so, like, I guess the way I would put it is, he's not working the story; the story's working him. Right. right. It's like mm. w- when you watch an episode, uh, Karen Kilgariff, uh, my podcasting queen, talks about this all <laughs> the time on my favorite murder. When she's watching an episode of I Survived, but she gets the sense that the person telling the story hasn't worked through the trauma of their story. Mm, yeah. And so, watching them tell it starts to just feel like you're watching something that you really shouldn't be watching <laughs> like right, that's like invasive, what it felt yeah. like watching mm-hmm. yeah yeah but he, and like and but it feels he like-
0: believes he believes the story or has he been just conditioned to believe the story at this point that's that's
2: i mean honestly add that to the heap of fucking unanswered questions right that this this whole story leaves mm-hmm. you with because we haven't even gotten into The DeFeos, well, yeah, and that fucking bit of business. Now, because I think
0: what gets, I think what gets confusing and why there is so much question around you know, the validity on, on the other side of things, playing devil's advocate, you know, there is the question of like, these people were broke for the rest of their lives, right? There was never another situation of a haunting in, at Amityville. And so they say, oh, the spirit came with them and followed them for the rest of their lives, no matter where they went around the world. Um, so it's like, actually, there's always, there's always the, an answer for something, right?
2: The fact that they were broke for the rest of their lives is actually debatable. Because George Lutz formed mm. an LLC, a, a Amityville Horror Holdings LLC, I, be, I believe the name of it, and he had—I <laughs> mean, he—he he, he had a—he oh. had a huge stake in—I—I I don't want to say all the sequels, but many of them. And wow. I mean, granted, they were like low budget. Okay, buy, but like also but just
0: like, right, just to put that into perspective, that's like you and me starting an LLC. That's like 9/11 Productions. <laughs> like, take the most traumatic event of your life.
2: I think he, I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers and what the proper participation distro looks like, but like, I know he had a stake in a lot of the movies that got made after that. I'll put wow. you this way. Wow. Even if he was broke, Homeboy was hanging on for dear life and like really milking that goddamn cow until there was nothing left.
1: They made money off the book, right?
2: It's reported that they made a quarter of a million dollars off the book, which... In 1979 money is, I guess, a decent amount of money, but, like, still not. Sure. I doubt they invested it well. I doubt they invested an idea. (laughs) So.
0: But they also were, like, always involved in some kind of legal dispute, like, all the time. So I feel like a lot of their money must have gone into that crap, too.
2: Probably, yeah. Now, when we look past the Lutzes and examine the facts surrounding the DeFeos, their life in that house, and their murders, we're confronted with a whole other ball of wax. It's a whole other set of disputable claims, conflicting stories, confirmed lies, and tragic facts that, on their own, present a puzzle that, in its own way, is complex and ultimately even more tragic than mm. the Lutz's story. So let's get into the DeFeo's, and we're going to start with a poetry reading. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Uh, on an autumn night in the town of Amityville, we called our punks to war. There were crowds in the streets and policemen off their beat. And I hear what someone said, that all the DeFeo's were dead. Ugh. Those are lyrics from an al- original song, allegedly written by murder victim, Don DeFeo. Oh. Yeah. What? Yes. Spooky. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into it. The amicable horror and all of its sequels all rest on the claim that this house was haunted, a lie that is rooted in Butch DeFeo's insanity plea and his claim that demonic voices in that house made him murder his family, right? So Butch himself has confessed that that claim was bullshit, that it was one of the many fabrications he came up with when trying to explain what happened on November thirteenth, 1974, when he murdered his family. Now, Weber advised DeFeo that if he presented contradicting stories, that it would help feed into the insanity plea, that all of that would help prove that you know he wasn't of sound mind. I mean, just not great. Butch ne- <laughs> but here's the thing. Butch has never- been Where did
0: he fucking go to law before. school? <laughs>
2: Pretty sure he, William Weber, might have been a court appointed lawyer. And at a certain point, even Butch <laughs> DeFeo claims that he tried to get somebody else to defend him. Now, Butch has never been a reliable source when it comes to the events of that night, but many facts and details have emerged about his family and the timeline leading up to the murders that have been corroborated by court testimony, the investigative findings of both local and federal law enforcement agencies and eyewitness accounts given by friends and neighbors of the DeFeo family now had Butch never pointed to demonic influences when trying to explain away his actions the story might not have worked its way into the zeitgeist the way it did because I mean at the time we were still rocking and rolling with the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and it was like the omen it was like you know precursor leading up to uh, the period when satanic panic would really like grip the idiots of this nation so we don't know that it would have been as popular a story, but then again, uh, it might have been because you can take away the supernatural element, but you're left with a story of the DeFeo's a family who were in the grips of addiction, domestic abuse, mental illness, and trauma. And if you think that's not sexy enough, sprinkle in the fact mm-hmm. that Ronald Sr. and Louise's dad, Louise DeFeo's father, Michael Brigante, all in the mafia. Both parents in this family had ties to two different mob families operating in the tri-state area. And that's confirmed by like wiretaps. I mean, Mike Brigante, but, like Ronald Senior's father-in-law owned car dealerships that were being tapped by the government. There's documented proof of all of that. And Ronald himself was reputed to be a master at cooking the books and like keeping two sets of numbers One for the IRS and one for the mafia. When the police cleared out the house and collected evidence, they collected a trove of guns. Like this house was Mm. (laughs) ironically, none of those guns were the guns that were used to commit the murder. Like they were just gun hoarding. That was gonna be my question. No, no. That they just they were just like gun hoarding, violent, abusive. Like that this this house was like neighbors referred to it as the crazy house. And when reporters were showing up to the house to sort of see what was going on. I remember one of them, I think I want to say Joel Miller, turned to a kid in the neighborhood and asked what's going on and the kid was just like, Ronnie shot his family. And this was when Ronnie (laughs) was still considered to be this is before he was even a prime suspect. Like, in the neighborhood the DeFeos just, they had a reputation that preceded them and it wasn't good. And honestly, it wasn't a reputation that was like predicated on gossip. Like it was a really, really tumultuous household. All of that said, once Butch DeFeo stopped leveling accusations at mob hitmen, he began offering up accounts of the murders that continued to change over the decades, like literal fucking decades. Like I want to say one of the last interviews he gave was in 2011 or 2012, but even then he was offering up different versions of the story. Now, this is what we know. We know that the DeFeos were shot in their beds on the night of November 13th. We know that after the murders, Butch dumped the Marlin rifle in a nearby canal, dumped the empty casings, a pistol holster, and live rounds in a storm drain in Brooklyn. And then he went to the Buick dealership where he worked, where he feigned concern for his father's absence at work. He went to work and was like, gee, I don't know where my dad is. What's going on? Huh? What do you think of that? pop hasn't really an alibi and then he left <laughs> so at, good right and he left at noon and he went to a bar with his friend bobby Kelski. bobby Kelski is a person who factors into various different versions of this story but he went he went to the bar with bobby Kelski where he was publicly displaying his concern for the fact that he couldn't get a hold of anyone in his family or he couldn't get into his house
0: just like Despite loudly being like the lived. craziest thing happened i don't know where my
2: dad is <laughs> yeah. Can everyone hear yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. I
0: don't know where they are.
2: Basically, he left the bar and this is this is the this is the like one of the moments that like became one of the iconic moments that comes up in every retelling. He left the bar and then returned a few minutes later and just was screaming at the top of his lungs, "I need somebody help me, somebody help me. Someone shot my parents." Now, what? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He went home and then went back to the bar and you know, started screaming about how someone shot his parents. He didn't call the cops.
1: I was going to (laughs) say!
2: Of course. You know, he just I mean, this was all about the, like, it was, all of it was just so weirdly performative. So Mm. he and a handful of his friends piled back into his car. They drove to the house. The friends all discovered the bodies, and they only, they didn't go to the third floor. They only found uh, the brothers and uh, Ronald, Sr. and Louise, but like You know, on the basis of those four, they called the police and all hell broke loose. Now, the police arrive. Butch swears that his family has been taken out by a mob hit. And so they bring him into protective custody because for a second there, they were assuming that he was the sole survivor of a mob hit and that he was in jeopardy and that the safest place he could be is in the police station. And overnight, while he slept and while the crime scene was being investigated... The beginnings of the case were starting to form against him. It was quickly deduced that all of the family members had been killed by a 35 caliber gun. Now, investigators eventually found an empty 35 caliber Marlin gun box in Butch's closet, along with another uh, gun box. And, you know, from that point on, he became Mm -hmm. the prime suspect. Now, overnight, while he was sleeping, the tables had turned and... When he woke up, first thing he asked about was, Oh, did you find the guy? Then you know, did you find Fellini? I think was the name of the guy that he was claiming <laughs> was trying to kill him. Sure, and they Tony. said, No, but I'm playing
0: it cool, I swear. They were
2: <laughs> right, and they were like, No, but we think you're the guy. <laughs> what me. <laughs> So they read him his rights at the station and arrested him for the murders of his family and the police wore him down now there are all kinds of claims that this confession was given under duress like there oh, you know there, I don't there give will a shit. Con- <laughs> right there will there will there will continually be uh the the Suffolk County Police Department at various junctures are called into question when it comes to their policing but you know, Absolutely. eventually, right, right. And um, so, but the police eventually wore him down and his mob hit story crumbled. And finally, he confessed and, and said, in these words, and I quote, it all started so fast. Once I started, I couldn't stop. It went yeah. so fast. Uh, never mind the fact that, like, every article you read says that the murders all took 15 minutes. This guy's out here talking about how it. 15 minutes really fast. Yeah, mm. and see, this is what I mean. We could just pause here for a moment and point out the fact that, like, so many of the details of this story have been just internalized and cemented as fact. That really, it's, I mean, uh, like, we're going to look over some of the stuff that feels a little janky and we can discuss it. In the years that followed, we know that he was tried, we know that he was convicted, and, you know, there were examiners that pe- people went on the witness stand and the prosecution asked a medical examiner in your professional opinion do you think this crime could have been perpetrated by one person and the medical examiner said no this Mm-mm. crime must have been perpetrated by at least three or four people three or four and so right yes this is
1: what i know from watching the sopranos mm-hmm. that this looks like a mafia assassination more than anything and with the going off so loud rocking that house unless everybody's drugged on some like Jonestown Kool-Aid light like they're gonna hear everything going on. I'm gonna offer up
2: a buffet of the <laughs> varying conflicting explanations for for the murders as uh, relayed by Butch DeFeo himself. In the years that followed, DeFeo offered up various conflicting explanations for the murders. Now, we'll start from the top, the conclusion reached in court and widely embraced in the media and pop culture that he killed his entire family by himself, that they were all found on their stomachs, face down in bed, no one moved, no one struggled. The next explanation that he offered up was that Dawn killed the family with an accomplice and Butch killed her in the struggle that ensued after he discovered the bodies. Mm. The next explanation is that Dawn killed her father, which spurred their mother Louise to kill her and then all of the siblings. And then Butch, in turn, arrived at the house and killed his mother.
0: Luke, you're making faces, please calm I down. love
1: it, it's just like, I like, just the bargaining of like, well, I killed my mom, or I killed my sister, or I only killed one person. Which person did I kill? I killed Jody the cat. Who did I kill? <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> right. Just washing their right. systems away, it's, like they all killed each other, and then I came in and killed one person. I stepped on a I'm, roach. I didn't I'm not anyone. I'm not totally, no. <laughs> you know, innocent. I'm not totally innocent, guys. I killed one person.
2: Yeah, the like the way I mean, he had no chance in hell of ever having an ounce of credibility because from the jump he was offering up all these different scenarios. But the facts remain: like you do not need to be a homicide detective to know that the likelihood of all these shots going off and nobody getting out of bed—that I mean, that just that—that that is impossible. But like, okay, we're gonna get into some of the other explanations now. One of the other explanations, and this is one that I want to circle back to, but one of them is that Butch killed his father with Dawn at his side. And this was the only murder they planned to carry out. But then when the mom gets up and says, Ronnie, Ronnie, what did you do? And by Ronnie, Ronnie, she's referring to the husband. When she gets up and starts fretting over her husband, Butch claims that Dawn pulls out a pistol, kills her mother with that handgun. Butch then claims that he left the house. And when he came back, Don had killed all the other siblings <laughs> to eliminate them as witnesses. That's and then he dumb. killed oh Don in my god! Oh my god.
1: That's dumb. The plan so, was to kill Dad right. and just leave him there in the bed. <laughs> so, I'm not yes. Mom, next one. One. <laughs> Yeah. Yes.
2: So here's some fun facts about Don DeFeo. Mm-hmm. Don was about as maladjusted as Butch was. Don, at 18, was being forced to go to a secretary school. And she was, and this is corroborated by one of the neighbors. She was literally planning to run away from home and go to Florida with one of the neighbor's daughters. Like they had the plan, they had the car lined up and everything. And like the neighbors also corroborate that like Ronald DeFeo Sr. was so abusive that like in the summer days when they'd all be like hanging out by the pool, Louise would be covered,
1: Mm. turtlenecks.
2: Long pants, sunglasses, like he kicked the shit out of everybody in that family, including Dawn. And like a lot of people who knew the family say that Dawn was a bomb waiting to go off. So, one other explanation leads us down a very strange and unexpected road. Now, I was researching a haunted house project that I've got in development with Amazon Studios right now. And in the process, I stumbled upon an independently produced documentary titled Shattered Hopes. The True Story of the Amityville Murders by Ryan Katzenbach, based on a book by Rick Osuna titled The Night the DeFeos Died. The night I I stumbled upon these documentaries is when I reached out to you about recording this episode, by the way, I was like, because I'll put you this way.
0: (gasps) This is is breaking news.
2: Yes. So, oh, girl, wait. This is the journey. Okay. Get ready. (laughs) During the course of the almost eight hour runtime of this documentary, the documentary goes to painstaking lengths to present an intimate portrait of the DeFeo family before delving into Butch's murder trial and revisiting all the ways Amy Deville horror was debunked when it was first released. He does a really great job of covering the Amityville hoax, and he does a pretty good job of covering the trial. Katzenbach builds on the foundation laid out by Osuna's book with extensive research and in-depth interviews from numerous family members, family friends rather, neighbors. Paranormal investigators and detectives, all all of whom had first hand experience with either the Tobeyos, the murder trial, the investigation, or the Lutzes. Come for the accents, stay for the horrendous dramatic reenactments. <laughs> I'm
1: there. I'm so there.
2: And the cherry on top is that the whole thing is narrated by Ed Asner. This shit is fucking wild. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. I love him. I swear to God, his voice is like it's been it's been over twenty years since I had a glass of bourbon, but like just beautiful, smoky. Oh my god. Great. Mm -hmm. So the documentary in in painting this intimate portrait of the DeFeos, the documentary puts one woman front and center, Geraldine Gates who, plot twist, claimed to be Butch DeFeo's wife during what? the time of the murders. Bro, secret wife. Katzenbach How old gives is he? her 23. This woman gets hours of screen time, and I can see why, okay? She is a captivating storyteller whose firsthand accounts of life in that DeFeo house, which she lovingly refers to as Crackerbox Palace. <laughs> the anecdotes are told, it's such exquisitely vivid detail. She claims she had a baby with Butch. She claims that he was with her before he went to Amityville on the night of the murders. She claims that she knew his grandfather, alleged mob figure, Mike Brigante. She claims that Ronald DeFeo Sr. himself frequently interfered with her marriage to Butch, okay? Like, if this documentary has a star, it is Geraldine Gates. She's the missing and link. And she, in all likelihood, was also completely full of shit.
0: I was going to say, <laughs> and she dated Santa Claus. <sighs> She's also Anastasia, like yeah, sure. Yeah, she's Anastasia. But
2: but 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 you are not going to believe how this comes out. In okay, and this leads us to the last version of the story that Butch DeFeo put out, as documented in court, documented in like a motion that he filed. He filed okay a four forty motion in an effort to get his sentence vacated. In the motion, he claimed that Dawn killed the family with an accomplice and that Butch killed her in the struggle that ensued after he discovered the bodies. In the motion, he name-checked Geraldine claiming that she was his wife during the time of the murders. He also name-checks a fellow named Richard Raimondo, who he claimed was Geraldine's brother. Now, the court, and doing their due diligence and, you know, getting into the 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 sort of the nuts and bolts of this claim immediately blow the story to smithereens. Right. They're like, hi, Geraldine was Geraldine was married and living upstate to somebody else during the time of the crime. A. B. Mm-hmm. Richard Raimondo does not exist. <laughs> C. See, <laughs> it is documented that you had a longtime girlfriend and that you lived in that house at the time of the murder and that you went to work most days with your father.
0: Amazing.
2: And it's wild. And so he is Geraldine...
0: is a gifted storyteller. He really is.
2: If you come away from this, <laughs> it's Geraldine, girl. I'm telling you. It is this bitch. She has no teeth.
0: <laughs> yes! She's a, she,
2: you, you, you could tell she's a chain smoker. It's wild. Oh, so, bless. I mean, the judge just ran down this litany of... He blew it to smithereens and... Geraldine was forced to sign a sworn affidavit saying that like, all these things weren't true. Okay, Mm. that was in 1992 in the early 90s Mm. when all this was going down. Now, 20 years later, she's talking to a writer named Rick Osuna, telling him that she's got all the fucking nitty gritty about what happened in this house, claiming that she'd known the DeFeo since the 70s, and going on camera as Katzenbach's star fucking storyteller. Now, he insists that Gacy's identity and marriage, right, he insists that her identity and her marriage records were wiped out by the mafia. And, you know, <laughs> according to various online sources, right, mm-hmm, according to various online sources and according to Butch himself, these two met in 1985 when he was already incarcerated. Now,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> And sh- and she was a jailhouse bride from like 1985 to... Na- like uh-huh. One version of events puts her in the mix with him in 1985 when they got married and stayed married until 1989. Now, while her involvement in the documentary does cast Katzenbach in less than favorable light as a filmmaker and a researcher, there are some facts that are indisputable because they're all... I mean... They're all in the Suffolk County case file that he like combed through to encounter this documentary that, that like, it's like everything else in this fucking story. It is the truth and lies just fucking blended together so fucking seamlessly that like, you don't know where one ends and the other begins. Okay.
0: Well, you said it's a variety of liars and con men and just people creating half it's also half truths which is even worse because it's kind of true but it's kind of yeah. not true like it's impossible yep. to know the fact or fiction in this case the only fact is that six people were murdered
2: mm-hmm. right 100 like, percent. and the haunting fucked up thing we can't even get to the bottom of how that all happened like this right? this case in a weird way had the had the supernatural aspect of it not been dropped by the Lutzes, like this case very well could have been like the staircase of its time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As for Osuna's book, which was the springboard for the whole documentary, Butch DeFeo himself claims to have never spoken to Osuna and has labeled it fiction. And he puts it in the same league as the Amityville Horror. Is he telling the truth? We don't know. We do know that despite Osuna's involvement in the making of Katzenbach's documentary, Butch DeFeo agreed to sit down with Katzenbach and film an interview in which we're promised a complete explanation for what happened. And naturally, as with seemingly everything Butch DeFeo was involved in, the interview ends in a cliffhanger and the promise of a continuation that to this day has not surfaced. Okay? So so like this whole (laughs) story, I know, this whole story, Mm -hmm. when the dust settles on all these facts and fabrications and all the hustling and the maneuvering we're left with a grim tragedy and a handful of puzzle pieces that don't all add up to a complete picture among some of the things uncovered in the case file uh there's there the there are the following details but the prevailing narrative is that DeFeo acted alone that the entire family remained in their beds undisturbed as he moved from room to room and shot each of them from point blank range now that he could pull that off without an accomplice Seems impossible, but we'll never know one way or the other. We do know yeah. that forensic investigators found gunpowder residue on Dawn's nightgown and omitted it from the mm. trial. Which could indicate that she fired a weapon that night. Again, we'll never That's
0: my question. My question with her being involved is how does she then get shot right in a bed on her <laughs> stomach with not with no blood trail throughout no defensive the wounds. fucking yeah. house? right like that's. well where- that leads
2: that leads this me where, to like- oh i was gonna say that leads me to my next point there's forensic blood evidence in the hallway of the house oh of oh. the second floor that like yeah yeah and this is the other thing that gets called into question the narrative that they were all on their stomachs undisturbed
0: right when sweeping. the
2: murders took place in the fuck in the fucking first place like there there are photographs of like blood on the woodwork in the hallway outside specifically outside of ronald DeFeo's seniors bedroom
0: yeah
2: and the idea is that he he got up out of bed he got shot he went down they carried him back into bed Ooh. this motherfucker almost weighed 300 pounds a big boy and butch Defeo was transitioning from an addiction to crystal meth to an addiction to heroin it's super strength (laughs) yes (laughs) right strength right Right. Uh it's real if, if his father did get out of bed and if he bled in the hallway and he went down out there but was found in bed that's the thing that like some that raises a question for a lot of people like Sure. To get there.
0: And here's the thing. I'm like 94% sure that I could get shot in our bed and Jay wouldn't wake up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He's a Girl. very sound sleeper. Meanwhile, like a Messy. mouse sneezes two houses away and I'm like, what the fuck
2: was that? Correct. What <laughs> the
0: hell was that?
2: <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's real. That's real. It's like we what we won't know, right?
0: No, there's no another,
2: way to That know. hurts. No, an, another thing that is strange, another puzzle piece to add to the pile. And this is corroborated with like, he, he not only did he have a film crew documenting this entire thing, he had the police on the premises for the search. The version of the story that said that Dawn had a handgun, mm-hmm. Ronald DeFeo told him where that gun was in the Amityville Canal, and they found the fucking gun. Oh! okay yeah so two I, guns and, now it, two guns potentially potentially in a, a different caliber a different a different round found in the like it's like there are all these weird puzzle pieces none of which none of which amount to a complete picture now it's just it just give me a moment leaving.
1: as
2: you said it's so <laughs> blow <laughs> it's blow poke moment it's also you know what it also is speaking of which it's giving me george reeve fucking the guy who played superman in that movie Hollywoodland. So all this, I mean, it's like, it's all, like all of it all boils down to the fact that like, we're never gonna know what happened in that house. And like, when looking at the story, you kind of have to make the choice to look at all the things that don't add up and look at all the facts that have and haven't been admitted into evidence during the trial. You have to look at all that and decide whether or not you're gonna overlook it. Now, when I was a kid, I watched these movies and I read the book and I saw something that kept me up at night, which was real proof of ghosts and uh, demons operating among us. Now, as an adult, I look at this story and I see something completely different. I see two families who, when put side by side, are really strange, almost funhouse reflections of each other. Mm. You know, they're two (laughs) families living in very different kinds of hell. Now, the DeFeo children's lives were cut short. After years of living in a house rocked by drug abuse, domestic abuse, child abuse—you name it—and you know the Lutz children came away from their time at 112 Ocean Avenue with their lives, sure. But it's safe to assume that they didn't come away from it unscathed. You know, How if could my they? no, I I, I right? honestly don't know, but I can tell if you, if it
0: was like, real, my God, th- your your life is ruined. And if it's not real, then like you've you've been living this weird sham forced on you by your parents.
2: Yeah, trapped in the Lutz. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And if the movie My Amityville Horror is any indication, we know that Danny Lutz grew up uh, to be a person who's living with a lot of trauma. Yeah. And you know, we don't know how long it took for his siblings to crawl out from under the shadow of this lie that their parents spun, and the impact that it had on pop culture in the world. Like we just won't. You know, it's just it's just such a complicated set of scenarios for both of these families. And then there's this house, you know. James and Barbara Cromarty bought 112 Ocean Avenue about a year and a half after the Lutzes evacuated. (laughs) These poor, they had no idea. That's so
0: crazy. A year and a half.
2: Yes, yes, a year and a half after the Lutzes ran off. Uh, claiming that the house was haunted, the, this couple moved in. They had no idea that there was a movie coming. They had no idea that there was a book coming. They had no idea oh. that droves of horror fans would make a pilgrimage to that house. they stand on their lawn. Oh. And- Dare up at that those quarter moon windows. (laughs) Those poor people. And like right. And like this like spooking themselves out, wanting so badly to believe that someone in that house was looking back at them and more often than not, somebody was. And it was Barbara Cromarty who was get the fuck off my lawn. (laughs) My fucking <laughs> right. the amityville, that there's a quote she's quoted in like there's a news camp, news footage of her on youtube and she says the amityville horror is a hoax it was a money making fraud and i and i tell you oh, fraud. Uh, it's so it's great the horror is the, the traffic office. on this street <laughs> right right and personally when i look at the situation i can't say for sure whether or not i believe uh, that Don DeFeo was acting as an accomplice. I can't say for sure whether or not uh, Ronald DeFeo's uh, friend Bobby Kelsky was that ap- was working as an accomplice. But I think I look at the whole situation, and I am absolutely certain that Butch didn't act alone, and that when mm-hmm. he was on the witness stand, he basically was living by the code that says you don't snitch i think he decided that he was going to take the loss on his own and meanwhile as far as everybody else even though I think, even
0: though he changed his story like six times
2: it you know, was he when changed a, he was on the his, stand he changed his story but he never blamed anybody who was alive he never pulled anybody. <laughs> that's he, nice he never pulled <laughs> in anybody that right. no, was John. But like mm-hmm. he, de- but he never pulled in anybody who was alive to refute his story. Make yeah, th- right. Refute his story or make him face the consequences of ratting on them. Mm. You know, like
0: right. Which you so- know, I think that can go either way. Where okay. what you're saying, where I don't want to be a snitch, or it's like if I somehow drag the dead into the situation and give them some blame, that takes some of the heat off of me. That yeah, sure, right. I did <laughs> part of the crime, but I'm not the monster in this situation. I'm not no. the worst actor in this situation. You're right, Brian. This could not be more complicated, and we will never fucking know.
2: No. Because where's, and, where's I mean, Butch now? <laughs> well, well, G- bless his heart. He did die in 2021, I would say, as practically all the major players have passed away. They're gone uh, now, right? Everybody, pretty much? In- including our friend Geraldine Gates. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> the irony of all of this is that the house... 112 Ocean Avenue, in and of itself, is a ghost. It doesn't exist anymore. Fans Mm. of the horror franchise have become such a huge pain in the ass that the official address of the house has been changed. And if you search for 112 Ocean Avenue on Google Maps, you'll find that it doesn't exist. And if you switch to street view mode and you navigate, to the plot of land where that house used to be, you'll find that the owners reached out to Google and asked them to blur the image out completely. I want to hear you that not... story.
0: <laughs> I want to hear, I want to know what that phone call sounded like. <laughs> right,
2: right. Like,
1: you, you just have God, to watch God, Google ads in understand. your house for the rest of time. Yeah. Oh my God, right. <laughs> never mind. This <Right. laughs> <laughs> happened so... to me though, because when I, when I went to the house a couple of years ago, I Googled it. And then I must have driven by it 14 times. And didn't realize because I was like, to have the address, and I'm like, why the fuck can I find this? Like it's a very easy street to find. And then you couldn't find the house and the windows have been changed and like they've gone yeah. they've made a lot of cosmetic edits to the house. um, but yeah. it's right there. It's very easy to get to it's a and little we'll tiny definitely,
0: ones. yeah, we'll definitely post photos of the house as it looks today, but we certainly do not encourage anyone to bother the people who live there. they it's just there's no reason to oh
2: no, no, especially considering the fact that they're just stacks and stacks and stacks of evidence that prove. That this haunting and the story and all of it was just a complete fraud. Looking back on the story and and the popularity of the franchise and the ubiquitousness of the haunting story, I'm fascinated by the fact that it's almost easier for the public to swallow a haunting story than it is for them to take a really good hard look at the fact that an entire family was murdered in this house. Yeah, I think that had this happened today, I think the DeFeo family and I, every retelling of this, ha- this story would probably be handled with a lot more empathy and mm. I guess a lot more curiosity and a willingness to look at the factors that were contributing to what was going on in that house. Uh, but this happened in the seventies uh, in the heyday of the exorcist and in the heyday of, you know, Rosemary's baby. And right. I guess a haunting story just happened to be a little bit the sexier. Thing. Then.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas now I think you're right.
2: In yeah.
0: I think you're right by that. I think now the love and obsession of true crime as it pertains to murder, I think no one would buy the demonic possession bullshit. I think everyone would absolutely believe that some guy would turn on his family and kill everyone. Whereas, right. you right. know what I mean? So they, I don't yeah. think they even would have tried that nonsense now.
1: Nancy Nancy Grace would have been all over this shit. Let's not forget there was a
0: family who was killed in that house. <laughs> oh, no. no. I don't want to hear about
1: no <laughs> demons. Hang up, caller.
2: oh wait a minute you did her proudly you've been watching your nancy grace episodes i I didn't even know that she took callers oh yeah (laughs) i mean we what was I gonna say i was gonna say something and it was it's gone the nancy grace threw me off
0: (laughs) she'll do that
2: (laughs) oh i also think that it's safe to assume that if these murders had happened today, beat by beat, the detectives working the case would have come up with far more answers than what they were able to in, in the 70s, given the technology, given, I think, also public pressure would absolutely, mm. I think, warrant them to like look at this entire thing very closely. Sure. Uh, in the meantime, this is what we have. And it's bleak, and it's bloody, and also fascinating, if only because there are just so many... Lies woven into this story. <laughs> That's all I got.
0: <laughs> That's plenty. My God. Yeah, Brian. What a what an incredible telling of what I think on its face is a pretty simple story. You know, I think we all know it as the movie or the book. And then, of course, the murder itself seems very like okay, yeah, this guy shut up his family. But when you break it down to all these different layers, it's it it has the the ability to be so much more complicated and full of like you keep saying just these. Charlatans and mm. bullshit artists. Luke, yeah. your perspective.
1: Brian, what an amazing retrospective of all the media that this has spawned, which I really didn't know much about at all. I knew about some of the first movies in the remake. Um, and I really appreciate that you took time and made a message here about the supremacy of the true crime story yeah. versus the haunting story. And I think in the cultural imagination, true crime hauntings or paranormal activity and conspiracy theories all occupy a similar space It certainly certainly occupies this podcast
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you and mean
1: <laughs> it's, it's all swirling around and it's just so interesting that if we think about we keep thinking about if this had happened today there'd be podcasts about it we would yep. be, re, we'd be rehashing this true crime story and the haunting story wouldn't necessarily hold as much water but it's all about the zeitgeist, the cultural milieu in which it is situated. And it's just fascinating to me that one, that one side kind of won the day. And yeah. I hope in the fullness of time, we'll we'll look back at the original tragedy, the real tragedy, as far as we can say, and examine it properly. It's just, it seems like this story also has just so many... It's it's rife with conspiracy theory. Like it's it's, so it's sort of a conspiracy theorist's gift, and there's <laughs> so many unexplored avenues and byways in here that I'm very excited about. So shipping the dawn theory, you know, <laughs> shipping the lady in black, whatever the multiple shooters, the different guns going. to oh, the yeah, bars. this is
0: this is Luke's like chef's kiss. This is his like dream shit right here.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm back. Well, out I'm now. glad that I could serve up a feast for you. You know, there's there's plenty to dive into for sure.
0: Before we go, Brian, do you want to share with us where we might next see your work?
2: Yes, I'd love that. So in the spring of 2023, which is, you know, a while from when this episode is going to drop, the show I was a writer-producer on will be dropping on Amazon Prime Video. It's called The Horror of Dolores Roach. It is adapted from the podcast of the same name and is a really great horror comedy about a woman who is driven to murder and her friend who in an effort to save her bacon, decides he's gonna start cooking her victims into empanadas (laughs) and selling them off to get rid of the evidence.
0: This sounds
2: familiar. <laughs> Set in modern day Washington Heights without any singing. <laughs> Lin-Manuel had nothing to do with this.
0: <laughs> Finally. God, get out of here.
2: It's going to be fantastic. It's starring Justina Machado and Alejandro Hernandez. We've got fabulous guest stars coming in. Judy Reyes, Mark Marin, Jeffrey Self, Amazing. and Cindy Lauper is going to be joining <gasps> us for a two episode oh my arc. god
0: the accent the queen. queen
2: yes that's <laughs> the right the gay
0: get of the century <laughs>
2: <laughs> and in the meantime uh, While you're waiting for that You can always check out Full Summer Which is streaming on Hulu I was a staff writer on that And, and it was and...
0: honestly so good And I hope that after people Have listened to this episode They'll be able to figure out Which was your episode In uh... well, I, mean... I I think they might They've learned a little bit About you today They might be able to figure out Your writing
2: Well my name is also on the episode No but... <laughs> oh, but
0: before
2: <laughs> Before the credits roll Dummy <laughs> Well, yeah, so the, that's the stuff that's out there. You can find find me on Instagram. I'm Brian Wright's Plays. And yeah, and if you're in any way tied to the DeFeo family or the Lutz family, don't start none. There won't be none. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very important <laughs> disclaimer. Thank you for that. That's
2: right, right Goddamn it. Thank
0: you again. Luke, do you want to finish us up here?
1: <laughs> thank you so much to our special guest, Brian Otania, for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Morbid Museum podcast. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum for more morbid content. Become a more buddy today. Until next time, we'll see you for another gallery talk inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye.